Welcome to The Sword and the Trial, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. I'm Tom Askell. Thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. Delighted to have you with us. And we are very excited about this podcast because we have the Rod Martin with us, executive committee member of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we're going to be getting into the inner workings of the Southern Baptist Convention today. Yeah, Rod's an old friend, an entrepreneur, a futurist. Uh, he sees things in wonderful ways ways from a perspective of the Word of God and established businesses and runs businesses now and he's uh, very active in the entrepreneurial world as well as the evangelical world and more particularly the Southern Baptist world and I think Rod now has been a guest on the Sword and the Trial more than any other person. This is Rod Pod 3.0 I think, right? Yes. So yes. Rod, welcome. It's good to have you with us, brother. Good to be here. Hey, before we dive in, th- big thank you to our fan members, the Founders Alliance membership, those of you who support us monthly and gain access to the armory and uh, some of the contents that's there. We're very grateful for your support. We also have the Institute of Public Theology that is now right. in full swing. Classes begin in August. There is a convocation. We're going to have Dr. Everett Piper there. Right. And so you can find out more information about that at instituteofpublictheology.com. Is it com or org? I don't know. But you can go to the Founders site. Yeah. Wow. Either, Either one. one. How about that? We're on both. Somebody was thinking. Very nice. You know, and at this uh, convocation, Everett Piper's going to be there. Tom Nettles, you'll be there. I'll be there. We might have some other faculty member that members that are able to join us for that. I'm looking forward to that August 28th uh, date. You can come. Uh, you find out more about it by looking on the website and signing up for it. We do need RSVPs, but you're invited to come to it. And we have opportunity right now of a matching gift for anyone that wants to contribute to help IOPT. If you will give... Uh, least for the next few months we don't have a a deadline on when this ends that uh, those monies will be doubled by a donor so um, if god lays it on your heart you have the means please uh, help us and contribute to this new effort of founders yes we also have our founders conference coming up in january militant and triumphant we've got uh, you'll be preaching i'll be preaching vody bockham conrad and bayway and james James coates from alberta it's gonna be a wonderful time so go to the website and find out more information about that as well Well, Rod, we're delighted to have you with us. We're a few weeks now uh, downstream from the Southern Baptist Convention up in Nashville. So what do you think? How did it go? You know, I, I think, you know, having organized for a little over a year uh, with Conservative Baptist Network, of which I'm also a co-founder, um, it's like getting to the Super Bowl in the first year as a team and losing by a field goal. I mean, I feel energized. I, I think uh, the other team's in a lot of trouble next year, and uh, I'm revved up and ready to go. Mm. Rod, talk about that for a moment because people say, hear you talking about teams and competition. They say, oh, my goodness, we, shouldn't we be unified? And wasn't that a big call this year in Nashville for us to leave Nashville as one uh, convention of churches, all supporting one another, all unified? And here, here you are talking about competition and teams. Well, there was clearly uh, no spirit of unity from the platform. You know, they called exclusively on people that were their friends. They completely cut out people who they thought might have the slightest opposing view to them, like Dr. Carol Swain, who is one of the nation's leading scholars on critical race theory and intersectionality and an African-American woman, for heaven's sake. And she's in J.D. Greer's line of sight and he just completely ignores her. Uh, You personally 
uh, were called out of order on something that was clearly not out of order. Uh, I mean, just thing after thing after thing. We we actually get told from the platform by James Merritt, you know, I wish some people cared as much about the gospel as they do about critical race theory. Well, I'm sorry, James, but in point of fact, the critical race theory is a false gospel, and that's why I care about it. Actually, I don't want our missionaries going out preaching a false gospel on the field. I don't want our seminaries teaching a false gospel to our future pastors. I, it, that is the point. So anyway, out of 15,000 votes, and, and I stress that's the largest turnout in 25 years, mm-hmm. out of 15,000 votes in a four-way presidential race, we lost by 500 votes on the second ballot between between the two final candidates, Mike Stone on, on our side and, and Ed Litton on theirs. And to deny that there are sides, and I'm being generous, I think, in calling it teams mm. right now, is just silly. There is clearly a divide. It has been widely, widely publicized in the mainstream media, and we are contending for things that matter a great deal. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about reality rather than the, the uh, pietous palaver of some of our leaders and just call it what it is. And I think that most Southern Baptists would probably prefer to have some people actually call it what it is. You know, having uh, a number of our listeners are likely not aware of the inside operations of the Southern Baptist Convention. It seems to take so long to get it figured out. I have to, I have to kind of renew it. I feel like I'm studying for a quiz every time. And they probably don't know that you are an executive committee member, and then they probably don't know what that executive committee is. And so just a, a brief sketch of that, you know, you elect a president, the convention gathers, elects a president, and then the president appoints these various uh, boards, committee on committee, committee on nominations, whatever it is, and then they appoint uh, that. That committee appoints all of your empty trustee spots on all of your entities. We've got six seminaries. We have the ERLC, the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board. These are all of our entities. Every one of our entities have some kind of president. And then they have a trustee board that uh, basically hires and fires that president. The executive committee is kind of like the chief committee. I think that you can correct me, Rod, if that's the wrong way to describe it. But it's eighty. It's eighty. It's an eighty-person body, all laymen and women, uh, and you gather three no. times a year. There's pastors. On well, there's there. pastors on there. I mean, I'm sorry, they're they're not staffed. It's not like they're like paid right. for for their work on the executive committee. Right. But you meet three times a year, and you are you operate as the convention ad interim. So you actually. Um, can remove churches from the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not the only thing that you do, but that is something that you do. And you have been elected to serve on that executive committee. You're two years into your term now. And so just give us a little taste of what it's like serving as an executive committee member, and then how should pastors of Southern Baptist churches relate to that executive committee? Okay, well, that's a lot. So actually, let me start at a somewhat conceptual level, because when you say all that stuff, all of which is true, by the way, well done, congratulations, that's better than 99% of Southern Baptists. hard to summarize. Uh, When you say all that, it sounds really complicated, but it's actually not very complicated. What we have, first of all, is autonomy of the local church. So Southern Baptists aren't at all like the Catholics or even the United Methodists. Every church is independent. What we have an SBC for is to 
administer and steward, I think is the better word, the money that we pool together to do certain things that are better done collectively than apart. So for instance, it works better to train and send international missionaries uh, as a body than it does as individual churches for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, one is most individual churches don't have a lot of money. And second, if you had a church split or a hurricane hit your church or whatever, and you were supporting a bunch of missionaries individually as a church, uh, the money goes away and now the missionaries stuck in Kenya or somewhere with no source of support. So Southern Baptists have, and, and, and by the way, in 2025, it'll be 100 years, uh, use the cooperative program as a way to pool money to, to do these things that we do better together, like seminaries, like missionaries and so forth. And that has to be administered. So, so all of these convention entities are just a stewardship enterprise. They are not authorities over our churches. And because they are a stewardship enterprise, they work politically. Now, my pastor friends tend to get a little bit out of shape if you use the word political in a church context, but that's deliberate. We did that intentionally because, again, it's not an ecclesiastical body. It is a body designed for all of Southern Baptists to pool their resources to do specific things, and we get to come together once a year in an annual meeting to decide how to do that. It is deliberately political. We don't have bishops. We don't have cardinals. So anyway, you get together to do that once a year. And yes, just as you said, we elect a president for a one-year term, usually electing for a second one-year term, and he gets to appoint a body called the Committee on Committees, which appoints another body called the Committee on Nominations, which in effect appoints all the trustees of all of those other things like the International Mission Board or Guidestone or Lifeway or NAM or whatever, Southern Seminary. That is a deliberately indirect process. Why? Because we don't want a president to individually have the power to appoint boards of trustees. We want that to be intermediated by a lot of Southern Baptists. He has this huge power to appoint the committee on committees, but even that is mitigated. A certain number of those people have to be pastors. A certain number of those people have to be lay people. A certain number of those people have to be from each of the states. So, so he doesn't get to just pick anybody he wants. And then the committee on nominations is the same thing. It's split up by geography and vocation and all these different things. And then all of those boards of trustees, same thing. So, so there's a bunch of mitigation of one person's power in that. And of course, those nominations have to be voted on by the annual meeting. But in practice, that's kind of a rubber stamp because you don't have a lot of time to debate all those people. If you wanted to debate every one of them, there simply would not be time. In fact, there wouldn't be time for a fraction of them. So, so in practice, the president of the SBC is exceedingly important for exactly one reason. And, and he has other small powers like, you know, appointing the committee on resolutions and running the annual meeting. But other than that, his real power is in that committee on committees appointment, which indirectly gets you to the boards of all of these entities. It would take something between four and eight years, depending, to change out a board of trustees 
at, say, the International Mission Board or the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So it's essential that if you care about how these entities are functioning, you show up every year at the annual meeting and be heard. Uh, this year, those of us who wanted Mike Stone instead of Ed Litton um, nearly got it done. I mean, like I said, 25-year record turnout. We only lost by a few hundred votes. If we had flipped 300 votes from Litton to Stone, Stone would be president. So the idea that, oh, it's just intractable and nobody can do anything about it is just completely wrong and obviously so. And uh, we will absolutely do better next year in Anaheim. Right. I want to uh, follow up with that and kind of get more into the executive committee, its role and how we can relate to the executive committee. But before we do, we, we have people that listen to us as well who are not Southern Baptists, never been Southern Baptists. And they look at this as outsiders. I, we had some visitors uh, in church recently who said they were so appreciative of what we're trying to do at Founders and Sword and Trial, uh, but they're not Southern Baptists, and, but they're part of the broader evangelical world. And they said, we believe what you're doing is very important. The way I framed this in a recent article is that the Southern Baptist Convention is not that important, but it does indeed matter. It matters for a variety of reasons. So what would you say to faithful Christians in churches that are not Southern Baptists as to why they should even be aware of, much less care, about how the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches goes, the direction we go? Well, the most basic reason, of course, is that we're probably training their preacher. You know, we have six seminaries that educate about a third of the seminary students in North America. So uh, so not just the United States, but Canada, too. So, you know, we have about 11 percent of the churches in the United States. We're training about a third of the seminary students. That means we're training a decent number of other people's preachers and music ministers Mm -hmm. also. And so if you let those seminaries go bad as they were in the 1970s and 80s, that is a huge body blow to all of Christendom. It It is massively consequential. So yes, they should be paying attention. They should care. And by the way, if they're a Bible church that basically, or some other independent church that basically agrees with the Baptist faith and message, they should affiliate and send messengers because we are affecting not just their future, but the future of America and the world every day. And they should come and be heard. Rod, just a technical question. It's a, there just seems to be so many people that are now eager to say, how do we move forward? And I think a part of moving forward is to know really how this EC operates and what are we going to do about churches that are just clearly outside the bounds of the Baptist faith and message. You mentioned the president appoints the committee on committees and then the committee on nominations, which appoints the openings on the trustee boards across all the entities. Is that true of the executive committee as well? It is. And uh, we just got... Uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, two entire years of, of, again, indirect, but J.D. Greer uh, nominees on the EC. So it'll be interesting to see if that uh, leaves us a majority conservative body or not. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know all those people, although there are some people in, in that group that give me pause. Nevertheless, um, that's changeable. That's changeable in a year. So So I will just say before getting to the intricacies of the EC that, again, it's important that people turn out and they don't understand just how important that is. But I can sum it up here. In an average year, 
only 7.2% of Southern Baptist churches have any representation at the annual meeting at all. Mm -hmm. This year, with 25-year record turnout, less than 12% of SBC churches were represented at the annual meeting. If a handful more churches sent messengers to the annual meeting, it would be a radically different outcome every single year. This is not rocket science. We're talking about a two-day business meeting once a year. If you care about stewarding a $30 billion in assets enterprise that runs through about three quarters of a billion dollars every single year, if you think that that many widows mites matter, just show up for two lousy days and vote. It, it's really a big deal. And if it is not going the way that your listeners think it needs to go, that may be on some of them. I mean, we really have to do this. And, and I've been doing it since I was a starving student with no money to speak of at all, out of my own pocket. Now I have some money and the EC would pay my way anyway. I still pay my own way. You know, a lot of people talk about, oh, my church can't afford to send me. Well, you send you. You know, this matters. This stewardship mission is placed upon us all, not just on our pastor. And, and we all have a duty to participate and take care of what the Lord has given us to steward in this brief moment in our lives. You know, what might energize people is um, getting from your position on the EC, just giving people an update. If you were to put your finger on the pulse um, of the various trustee boards of the entities, so you got six seminaries, each with a trustee board, you got NAM trustee board, IMB trustee board, the actual executive committee trustee board, ERLC, you know, not just the heads, not the presidents who are speaking, because sometimes I feel like a president says something and everybody throws their hands up and wants to leave. And I want to, I want to say, what's not, what's yes, yeah. Yes. And, and so actually, if you can go a layer deeper, what is this, the status? What is the health of those trustee boards, their training and who those people are uh, from your vantage point as an EC member? It's gonna it's gonna be a little hard to know for for a moment because, like I said, we just got not one but two years of of JD's nominees uh, because we missed a convention in 2020 due to COVID, and that's going to meaningfully change uh, a number of these boards. We don't know quite how yet, and then you're going to get at least a year of Ed Litton if he doesn't resign or something. So it's it's going to be different, and we don't know quite how yet. And earlier, I think you said, Tom, that you know the executive committee meets three times a year, and that is the minimum number of meetings we have. But it is not uncommon for us to have a special called meeting at the drop of a hat um, by Zoom, and uh, we decide some big thing. So. Uh, any of these boards might have a lot of meetings from time to time. And then uh, this last year, I served as an officer of the executive committee, and we were just meeting all the blooming time. I mean, you just can't imagine the difference in the workload for an officer versus a regular member. And it matters who are in those officer groups. Those officer groups operate as an executive committee of their boards. So, you know, in effect, you know, last year I was on the executive committee of the executive committee. They do a lot. And 
there's a limit to their power because part of the idea of, of our system of organization is that all of these individual trustee boards are over a specific ministry assignment. Mm-hmm. So IMB can't do what NAM can do. Uh, Southern Seminary can't get into IMB's business. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission has its own ministry assignment that's different from the executive committees and so forth. And you might argue about the utility of some of those or, or if they might possibly need reforming. But but the point is, uh, for instance, the executive committee can't tell the ERLC what to do. Uh, the executive committee does have meaningful power over the uh, cooperative program allocation budget of each of these entities. And the executive committee has a very specific ministry assignment over things that it is supposed to shepherd. And as you rightly pointed out, uh, the documents say that we are the convention ad interim, uh, which means that we can do whatever the convention could do when the convention isn't meeting, unless there's some something somewhere that says we can't. There, there are things that the EC is not allowed to do in place of the convention, for instance. But even that is a little bit of a gray area. So. Uh, it very much depends on who's on the EC and, and how ambitious they are as to what they are able to do. And, and the definitions could be quite a bit more expansive than they are currently in practice. Rod, one of the things that has become increasingly clear to me over the last few years is that we need to give serious attention to our trustee system and how yes. trustees of entities are trained because so many of the trustees tend to act like they're uh, employees of the entities that they are supposed to be holding in trust for the churches. And I've had conversations with those trustees and have been very, very disappointed in the ways that they've responded to me as a pastor of a Southern Baptist church. I got the impression that they see their job as protecting the entity at any and all cost from any kind of question that might be raised against it. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, is there any prospect that we could see a, uh, a renovation of our trustee system or at least trustee training so that those who serve as trustees are reminded and, and told how to think of themselves as serving the churches, not the entities that they hold in trust? This is a serious problem, one that I have been talking about for a long time, and I'm grateful for you bringing it up. We do have a tendency among many of the trustees on many of our boards, and I wish it were just national, but I've seen it at state levels too, to think they kind of work for whoever the president of their entity is rather than the other way around. This is honestly perverse they represent Southern Baptists. Mm -hmm. They are there to represent the interests of Southern Baptists. They hire a president, whether that's Ronnie Floyd at the executive committee or, or, uh, you know, whoever happens to be the president of a, a state level entity, like, um, I don't know, uh, pick the Florida Baptist children's home or, or, uh, Truett McConnell university or whatever. The presidents of those organizations are employees of the trustees who represent the Baptist in the pew. And the tendency, particularly at some 
of our entities, like the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, has been for the, the trustees to act as though they are a Praetorian guard defending Russell Moore. Mm-hmm. And that's just completely backwards. Uh, and, and you see that you see that uh, working in both directions. There is a tendency of the presidents of entities to exert influence on the nominating committee so as to, in effect, pick his own trustees. That is a problem. That should not ever, ever happen. Um, There is a tendency of those trustees to feel a natural affinity to the staff, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but they have to remember who they work for. They work for the Baptist in the pew, not for their employees. And, And third, there's a tendency, as you see in bureaucracies generally, and this is certainly true in the United States government, there's a tendency for staff to recognize correctly that it will be there long past the, the likely tenure of any elected person, much less an elected coalition. And so if they just play the trustees, if they just wait them out, they tend to get their way. And it is, it is an inherent problem with any bureaucracy, corporate, governmental, church, makes no difference. And sometimes that gets downright abusive. I have seen situations in Southern Baptist life where staff ran roughshod over the trustees and the trustees were insufficiently either aware or perhaps organized to understand what was happening to them. And they just got played all day long. Mm. Rod, what would be the next step to actually get this trustee training done? Who would we go to? Well, I think what we should probably do, because I had high hopes that the executive committee would take that up. And I had conversations with Ronnie Floyd before he became president of the EC, where he was clearly in favor of something like what Tom was just suggesting. But in practice, that hasn't worked. So I think uh, there probably needs to be some effort at the annual meeting level. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly how we would structure it, although if you give me five minutes, I can probably write you a pretty complicated motion um, that that would create a body to train trustees that is independent of any of the entities. And it, there probably needs to be uh, some effort in this direction uh, to empower perhaps the convention officers uh, to have to have appointment power there, so that with with a very specific brief to train all Southern Baptist trustees, regardless of entity, on their duties to the Baptist in the pew, yeah, yeah. and that is not a perfect solution because honestly, you know, we all got trustee training and I bet most trustees forgot it about 10 minutes later, or at least a year later, and they're going to be there for eight years in most cases, but still it's, it's an important point and it would be useful to have reminders perhaps from that body, just periodic updates on training. I know as an attorney, I, I don't practice anymore, but when I did, I 
I had a continuing legal education requirement every year. It would not be a bad idea to have an online webinar every year reminding trustees to whom they owe their fiduciary duty. This would not be complicated. It would not be hard to implement. And it would be a very helpful structural reform for the SBC. Right, that's that's so good. And uh, I hope those ideas can be implemented sooner rather than later. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Anaheim. So the next year's convention, 2022, is scheduled to be in Anaheim, California. That's not typically considered to be a hotbed of Southern Baptist churches. Uh, <laughs> if uh, if Ed Litton uh, remains president until uh, that convention, then it will be kind of customary that the sitting president, if he wants it, is given a second year to serve. And so though it's not unprecedented, it's, it's been unusual, at least in recent years, for a president who's coming up on that opportunity of a second year to be contested. Uh, what are your thoughts about Anaheim and what should happen and how uh, the, this team you described should try to mobilize to get messengers there? Well, obviously, uh, all of those elections were contested in the in the 80s during right. the conservative resurgence. Uh, it is it is noteworthy that uh, the side that the New York Times has redubbed the moderates. Um, <laughs> what interesting language they yeah. choose. Yeah. Um, that side never ceased to go after conservative presidents when they were elected. Uh, they they fought like tigers every single year. They they never gave anybody the respect of of an uncontested second term. And we've already seen that happen uh, at this annual meeting. We had the sitting vice chairman of the executive committee who was reelected the day before by the executive committee for a second term as vice chairman, removed from the executive committee entirely by the nominating committee. And the, the representative of the nominating committee says from the platform, custom doesn't matter. Tradition doesn't matter. We've made this decision. It's our decision. And the body actually voted to uphold that. Now, they lost one of those a little bit later when Jim Averett was successfully elected uh, to the credentials committee. So they were not they were not uh, consistently successful in these things. But whenever it suits them, precedent is out the window. Tradition is out the window. So you may rest assured if we had elected Mike Stone, if we had flipped just 300 votes out of 15,000 and Mike Stone were president of the SBC right now, they would already be running someone against him. So I have no qualms about running somebody against an admitted plagiarist who is currently president of the SBC. I think that we have a duty to run someone against an admitted plagiarist serving as president of the SBC. And moreover, I don't understand why he's not subject to church discipline right now. Indeed, if someone were to file a complaint with the credentials committee against a church who has an admitted plagiarist in its pulpit, I think that would be germane and worthwhile. But even if he were the nicest guy in the world, we have meaningful and significant disagreements on 
the future of the SBC and how it should be conducted and who should be appointed to these different boards. And so I think it would be completely justified and reasonable to run somebody against him in Anaheim. And I fully expect that that you will see a candidate against him in Anaheim. And one thing, Rod, that uh, we're hearing a lot about from people outside the SBC is, hey, you know, the the president should be recalled, Ed Litton, because of the plagiarism scandal and uh, the, the documentation of that has come out. It just seems like there's new stuff every day in New York uh, uh, Times is working on a story and we've seen. Uh, different magazines that have picked it up. And it just, it, I'm again, almost every morning I hesitate to look at the news to see uh, what Southern Baptists are going to be called by uh, secular media today because of this plagiarism scandal. So there is no mechanism to recall a president. Uh, with the executive committee at interim, I mean, is there anything the executive committee could do? Uh, what, what if we had a president of the SBC and the church would not exercise church discipline on him and say he was guilty of covering up sex abuse and it became evident and there was all kind of evidence out there and yet he remained president of the SBC and his church said no this is not an issue does the executive committee have any recourse in 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 that kind of hypothetical situation there is no mechanism for the removal of an SBC officer there probably should be, but there isn't. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how you would construct one that people would be happy with because you could easily cause more problems than you fix. However, uh, there isn't going to be any such mechanism during the time that Ed Litton is president, whether that's 10 minutes or two years. Right. So, I mean, that just, it's not possible for that to happen in that amount of time. It is possible that a complaint could be filed with the credentials committee and his church be disciplined for having failed to deal with someone who is in open, blatant, unrepentant sin. Uh, But I, I doubt that the credentials committee would actually wish to do that. And of course, if the credentials committee did that, then their recommendation would come to the executive committee for action. And I'm quite certain that would be a contentious debate. So I, I, and also, I, I don't know that that is exactly the way this should go. Mm-hmm. I can tell you the way this absolutely should have already gone. Southern Baptist leaders should be standing up for public integrity. Mm-hmm. This is an integrity issue. How many times were we told from the, from the platform in Nashville, the world is watching. Well, the world is watching this. It's worse than that. There was actually a joke made from the platform of the General Assembly of the PCA this past week about Ed Litton's plagiarism. The world isn't just watching, the world is laughing. And this is a horrible public witness. They want to say, oh, well, the world thinks our witness on sex abuse is terrible. Excuse me. We amended the Constitution to deal with the sex abuse issue for only the third time in a century. We set up a a completely new credentials committee process precisely to deal with sex abuse. We had the entire Caring Well initiative to deal with sex abuse. We're talking about, according to the Houston Chronicle, 700 cases in 50,000 churches over a 20-year period. To say we haven't taken that seriously is nonsense, but here, 
we not only aren't taking blatant plagiarism out of the pastor of a major church who is also president of the Southern Baptist Convention, seriously, we actually have major Southern Baptist leaders defending plagiarism. All of these men have advanced degrees from Southern Baptist institutions where you would be expelled for doing the same thing. So uh, the, the just blatant moral rot on this issue among many of our senior leaders is shocking and believe me documented because the internet forgets nothing so the credentials committee really does seem to be the tip of the spear for this issue with ed Litton, his church and uh, also many of the other churches that are clearly outside of the baptist faith and message 2000 and it's important for southern baptists to know those who are listening to this that the credentials committee has been established appropriately by the convention there was a process that, that we went through this is the system that has been created uh you know you have this this um independent churches indeed uh, baptist churches are that way and yet we are in happy cooperation together in the southern baptist convention and you can be removed from that southern baptist convention and that is not uh, any encroachment on the independent nature of your church we're not shutting you down we're not taking your building oh. we're just saying you're no longer in happy cooperation with this body and we absolutely have the constitutional authority to do so now the mechanism is the credentials committee that's been referenced a couple times you know, I've submitted something to the Credentials Committee over a year ago, and I had not heard back from them. There is a church that actually has um, performances in it that are so vile, I couldn't tell you the words that were said or the things done because it would be inappropriate. This is a Southern Baptist church. I've submitted them to the Credentials Committee, and I haven't even heard back. I, I didn't hear back. No, thank you for your request. We're not going to accept it. I did receive an automated reply when I sent it, but I have no idea whether that was been submitted to the Executive Committee or what, what's going on with it. And I think Southern Baptist do need to know some details about it there's a way for you to submit a church so you can type in google credentials committee southern Baptist convention it's going to come right up it'll be an sbc site um but it doesn't i it, may, it might say this here i don't think it does how many people are on that uh, committee that credentials committee rod and then how do they do their business do they assemble in person and actually look over these churches do they just kind of zoom it in and kind of see what they can get on the internet from what was submitted well, I, I want to stress, I have not ever been a member of that committee, and that is a new committee. It's just existed in its current form since the Birmingham Convention, and so all of its processes are new and more than a little opaque. The reason for that is obvious, actually. They, they don't want uh, to be doing in public things that could potentially be slanderous of, of people who might be innocent. Their problem, as you can imagine, is that they don't have subpoena power. They don't have an army of private investigators. They don't have any kind of police function. So they are limited to the information that someone sends them in the form of a complaint, plus whatever the church might voluntarily respond with. Now, to the best of my knowledge, every church they have recommended to be disfellowshipped has been. And to the best of my knowledge, all of those votes, and of course, those, that's voted on by the executive committee, all of those votes have been unanimous, I, I believe. And some of those have been over race. Uh, some of those have been over sex abuse. I know in the February meeting, we voted to disfellowship a church that had hired a registered sex offender as its pastor. In their view, uh, the church's view, uh, he was repentant and it had been a while. Uh, 
in the credentials committee view, um, a registered sex offender uh, is violative of the standards of First Timothy 3, and he just can't be a pastor. He can be a member, he can be whatever, but he can't be a pastor. And, and the executive committee upheld that unanimously. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't hire him. That doesn't mean he can't be their pastor. It just means they aren't in friendly cooperation with the SBC anymore. So uh, it is a somewhat opaque process. They don't tell us a lot. In fact, they tell us virtually nothing about what they're doing. But at the same time, they're not a star chamber because they don't get to exert authority over anybody. The authority has to be uh, exerted such as it is by the executive committee. So uh, they deliberate in secret and they don't talk about what information they have. They just give us a recommendation when they're finished and uh, and present such evidence as is appropriate for them to do so. So I, I don't know if you'll ever hear from them, Jared. I, I actually don't. I don't know what their procedure is on that. I do know, having talked to a couple members of that committee, about their procedures. Uh, there is some desire to tune up, tweak, fix certain procedures that were adopted at first that may not be working quite as well as they had hoped initially. And uh, that might be a worthy topic of discussion with someone about that if, if one of the someones were willing to come on your show. You know, Rod, um, I I've been deeply grieved, as I know many Southern Baptists have, at uh, the stuff that's come out about Ed Litton. I've been concerned about him, been concerned about his church, and have prayed that the church would help, that his elders would gather around him and help him to sort out what's going on with this plagiarism in the pulpit. But it also has dawned on me that we have a perfect setup for those who, like Danny Aiken, who has said, you know, that we need to uh, not just welcome ethnic minorities to have a seat at the table, but also to give them leadership at the table. That we have an ethnic minority who's the first vice president of the Southern Magic Convention, elected by the messengers in Nashville, and we're Ed Litton to do what I think would be the right thing and just resign and, and deal with his congregation, deal with his own uh, soul in this matter, then we would have uh, a, a black president of the SBC. And it seems like that's what folks have been clamoring for by saying that those that are not ethnic minorities need to step aside and let ethnic minorities take leadership. Why do you think that's not happening? Why, why isn't that just not an automatic thing? Well, God forbid Dr. Lee Brand should ever be president of the SBC from the point of view of Dwight McKissick and others, because Lee Brand is a powerful preacher, dean of Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, and has preached powerfully against the evils of critical race theory and intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And of He's course, an you know, right? he was certainly my favorite candidate for, for first vice president of the SBC. Therefore, he is the devil. Mm. I mean, you just cannot possibly hold high office in the SBC while being a friend of Rod Martin. And uh, if you don't believe me, ask Dwight McKissick. So, you know, this is this is kind of where they are. They, I honestly think that if if Ed Litton burned down a building on camera, they would defend him rather than allow the African-American Southern Baptist leader, Lee Brand, to be president. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's not radically different from a lot of the other situations in the SBC. Walter Strickland is certainly 
uh, no friend of the Conservative Baptist Network or Founders Ministries. Uh, he, you know, he has spoken glowingly on camera about James Cone, for heaven's sake. But he would be an obvious selection to replace Danny Aiken as president of Southeastern Seminary if Danny really means it about white leaders stepping aside for black ones. Uh, when J.D. Greer was president for an actually unconstitutional third term, uh, he had the opportunity to step aside for a black Southern Baptist leader, Marshall Osbury, uh, who was his first vice president. J.D. did not step aside for his black first vice president. Uh, and, and to be fair to J.D., I, I guess that Marshall would probably be to the left of J.D. So, you know, there, there's something perhaps to be said for that. But it doesn't change the fact that they speak with fork and tongue. They talk about white leaders stepping aside for black leaders, but they don't do it. And in this case, you actually have an opportunity for somebody who is engulfing the SBC in an international scandal to step aside for a conservative, solid, powerful preacher. And, and an accomplished man in every possible respect. And of course, they don't want that to happen because, well, uh, he likes us. Mm. We just can't have that. It is mighty clear uh, that there is certainly a cancer in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so we use a lot of words about it's a big organization and things change slow. And yeah, but uh, you don't get into the situation that we find ourselves if you don't have massive problems all the way through. It is rotted and there's all kinds of things that need to be changed. We're grateful that you, Rod, are serving on the executive committee and have the courage to actually speak the truth as one who is in a position uh, to which you are elected in so many people get there and then they're unwilling to actually say what needs to be said. You know, we're going to need a lot of more people to be doing just that. A lot of pastors. If you are a Southern Baptist pastor, I've been telling people um, now would certainly be the time to leave if you're going to stay in and not say anything. So if you're going to stay, then you must start to speak. You must start to fill the inbox of the credentials committee. We're going to set up the credentials committee, then we actually need to use it. If we're going to have these kinds of things where there's very public displays, speaking of which the church that I submitted to the credentials committee might add that it was like crazy, abusive, nasty, bloody nose language, bruised knees language in the song that they performed in the worship of God Sunday morning. This is what they did. And I've submitted this abusive congregation, this abusive performance, David Hughes Church in Florida, to the credentials committee. And we have stuff like that that simply has to be dealt with, stuff like Ed Litton that has to be dealt with. So we encourage you to engage if you're going to stay in the Southern Baptist Convention. Pray for Rod Martin and his work as an executive committee member and pray for Anaheim with yeah. what's coming up in this coming year. Yeah, and let me just add to that. I mean, I, I want to appeal to pastors and Southern Baptist church members, Southern Baptist leaders in churches. Um, we have a stewardship. What Rod talked about is so vitally important. The entities and the institutions of the SBC belong to the churches. And I understand yes. the sense of uh, despondency that comes over. You think, what can we do? Nobody listens. It's a big bureaucracy. It's just let's cut our ties and walk away. And as Jared said, that, yeah, that may be the right thing to do for you. I, I'm not judging anyone who makes that decision. But brothers and sisters, let's consider who we are. We had 12% of Southern Baptist churches represented by messengers in Nashville. That means that of the 47,000 Southern Baptist churches, less than 7,000, closer to 6,000, were actually represented there. 
actually had a voice. If we could just get 10% more, it, we could completely express the will of the churches in a way that could not be misunderstood. And yes, it's going to be costly, and yes, it's going to require time, but now is the time to begin planning on getting to Anaheim next June. So I just want to encourage you to consider that as a congregation. There are ways to do it. We'll link an article that I wrote uh, a couple of weeks ago at Founders about how churches can engage financially with the convention and still have messengers, and how you can also provide a way for your messengers to have some finances to get to the convention. Whatever we must do, if we're going to stay SBC, we must seek to be influential for the spiritual health of this convention of churches. If we're not willing to do that, then uh, yeah, maybe the best thing is just to go ahead and, and walk away. But it is worth contending for because of the good things God has done and because of the way the Southern Baptist Convention matters. It matters in the broader evangelical world in North America. It matters around the world in the advance of the gospel. It matters in our whole culture here in the United States. So we would encourage you to get engaged, stay engaged. Uh, we'll do the best we can to help resource you and provide information for you. Yeah. Rod, brother, Rod, I, would, I would add to that just briefly. There are a lot of ways, and we were discussing this before you started recording the show. There are a lot of ways for a church that feels that it just can't support this or that thing the convention is mm -hmm. doing to give to ministries that it does support within the convention and still be entitled to messengers. I'm not advocating for that, but I'm telling you it's possible. And the bigger thing is the convention's been around for 170 years. We have been doing in, in incredible things all around the world for a very long time. Those institutions are real. They're not going to go away because you go away. Mm -hmm. And if they are used for terrible purposes in the years to come because the faithful voices just wouldn't do the not that hard work of showing up at one meeting a year for two days. You were going to take a vacation anyway, spend two days of it voting for what God would prefer happen in the biggest denomination in, in the country. This is not a tall order. This is not a big sacrifice. And if you will not sacrifice now when it's easy, don't pretend you're going to be sacrificing great things later when persecution comes and terrible things take place to you and your grandchildren. Don't pretend that. Don't pretend that you will have courage then if you won't do the tedious small things that are required now. I could poll all day long, and, and in my other life, I've done a lot of political stuff and been involved in some pretty big things. And I can tell you, I could poll all day long, Southern Baptists are not woke. The overwhelming majority, not just a slight majority, the vast majority of Southern Baptists are not woke, would not agree with the things that we are talking about today, would absolutely support a better future. They just aren't showing up in the room. And so we have to get them there. We have to get you there and we can make a difference. If we had flipped 300 votes out of 15,000 in Nashville, a couple of weeks ago, Mike Stone would be president and the appointments going on to these boards would be completely different. So be some of those 300. It's not that hard. It isn't that sacrificial, but it is our stewardship duty. Amen. Rod, thanks so much for coming on The Sword and the Trial today. It's been great to see you, brother. 
Oh, you too. Thank you.